Happy New Year's. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the January 7th, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader. I'm uh, shaking down that news desert opening up in uh, Orange County. 3.3 million reside here, and we're losing the media to cover us. Seems like a good time to raise KCUI's game, eh? Well, I'll get part of that done today with social scientists taking the reins, starting with Alexander Macias, political science professor at Cal State Northridge University, building what you would call a, I would call, you could call it, a two-way civic education enterprise, California45th.org. Then, UCI sociology professor David Meyer will chart social movements around the world unfolding on all the continents. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Alexandra Macias, Cal State University Northridge, political science professor and member of California45th.org, of which is the subject of today's interview. It's a nonpartisan grassroots group focused on reaching constituents and encouraging civic engagement in the 45th, that's right here, folks, Congressional District of California. Prior to her appointment as professor of political science at Cal State University Northridge, Alexandra taught at Irvine Valley College and Saddleback College. Her initial research interest focused on parties of the far right in Europe, but as a longtime resident of Orange County, she's become more interested in local politics, specifically with respect to the decrease in political party affiliation among voters and increase in non-party preference identification among voters. And I will have an Orange County Registrar Voters announcement at the tail end of this whole show today, folks, because deadlines are flying at us here with the primary coming up. Alexandra studies how much the shifts in party registration affect both politics in the California 45th and Orange County in general. Alexandra Macias completed her BA at UC San Diego with a major in political science and a minor in German literature, her master's in political science at San Diego State University, and her PhD in political science right here at UCI. She lives in Mission Viejo and imagine how athletic her commute from southern Orange County to northern San Fernando Valley is. She joins me, though, today. We've got her right here in person, in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Alexandra Macias. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here, um, especially since my son is also a UCI graduate, 2018. He played water polo in the oh. pool right across the way. So some of my happiest memories here at UCI were on that pool deck. So, uh, and we've we've actually talked to, to a researcher that's been concerned about the uh, forty-five mile an hour at your son's head water polo ball. So we've we're we're all over all these things. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, excellent. Well, let's go on with what the subject of today's the California forty-fifth dot org with your group's website informing voters in the district about our incumbent, Katie Porter, currently, and all kinds of details for voters in the district, you've created something very amazing. California45th.org, raising everyone's games and including the incumbents, because this is shining the light on them. So was this from whole cloth formed? Yeah, so this is what happened. The, our story is very similar to a lot of stories across the country after the 2016 election. And I'm not sure if you've discussed Indivisible on this particular web or on this particular not, show or not. Not actually. Right. But, but after the 2016 election, there were a lot of grassroots groups that emerged across the country, which were focused on Congress. And that was no different in Orange County. But with respect to our specific group, one of the things that we recognized early 
early on is that this particular district is not just Republican, not just Democrat, but there's a fair percentage of non-party preference voters. And so if you have a fair percentage, and when I say fair percentage, I just looked at the registration numbers at, okay. on the OC registrar. This just in? Yeah, just in a couple days ago. Okay. 27.4% of registered voters in California 45th are, tw- are non-party preference voters. Now, that's a pretty huge percentage. And what is perhaps something a lot of people don't know is that over the last eight years, that has increased. And what that has to also mean is that registration for Democrats and Republicans has changed as well. So when you look at 2012, when this district was first drawn and people voted, the percentage of Republicans in the district was 44.7%. That was June 2012. Today, that is, as of the other day, it was 35.5%. So Republican registration in the district has decreased by almost 10%. So there is, with all that, we could talk about how you're coaching, you're directing viewers on your website platform. The way in which you register is going to complicate your participation in the primary. And we actually, in preparation for this, you and I were we were trading some of the data that's coming out of the Orange County Registrar voters so that people are aware that in order to get the slate of the party you want to be voting and you got to get that paperwork done yesterday. And today is also, I'm not sure if that's on your website, but there is a dry run. They're doing a dry run all day today. Yeah, that that specific information isn't on our website. One of the things that we wanted to do was make sure that people had a place to go that was nonpartisan and could give as objective and empirical information as possible. So what you mentioned with respect to primary elections is something we saw in 2016 where a lot of people who were non-party preference did not know that they had to request a Democratic ballot if they wanted to vote in the primary. And if they wanted to vote in the primary for a Republican candidate, they actually had to change their registration. So one of the things that we did last year in the midterm election, I'm sorry, 2018, correct, is we flyered non-party preference households and we told them that they were eligible to vote in the primaries right. because unfortunately a lot of non-party preference voters did not know that they could vote in primary election. So there's a lot of confusion out there about this. And it matters because, as you said, 27.4% now have that, not affiliation, but that designation. Correct. Correct. They're going to be super surprised if they're not. And a lot of the non-party I'm not sure if you can break down how many of them are going to be new voters, too. But well, can you reasonably expect they are? Well, yes. And so, you know, what our research, what our group does is in addition to spreading information and providing a platform with which people can discuss things, we have a Facebook group, which is discussion based, but we also have a website, which is a clearinghouse for information for everybody, for everyone. And one of the things that we've recognized through our research, because we got through a um, list of voter files, you can actually obtain voter data data information. And when we've done an analysis of voter voter data information, we've recognized that voters who are younger and voters who are foreign born are more likely to register as non-party preference voters. And those two groups, especially amongst the foreign born, foreign born voters make up about a quarter of voters in the congressional district. Oh, wow. And what's important to know about that is that if you're non-party preference, you're less likely to be contacted by a political party. So you have a significant percentage of voter in the district, which is not contacted by a party and which are lacking information about basic electoral um, issues such as voting, such as who's running, those sorts of things. And we thought that would be an important hole that our organization could fill. So I'm wondering, though, with the increasing sophistication of targeting voters, though, if more non-party preference are going to be found by all of the campaigns though well they I mean, well they will trend. they will what i what i will say in our my particular household and this is anecdotal is my particular house, household has registered partisans as well as non-party preference voters and so i did kind of an anecdotal study where i saved all of the election mail that was sent to our household and i split it up by who's the partisan who's the non-party preference voter oh, the wow. non-party preference voter received one piece 
of election mail compared to the partisan voters okay. in the household. That tells you a little bit a about lot. what the parties well, are doing. That's the gauge. Oh, excellent. So uh, I, I was asking, though, that did you create this out of this is like, let's talk about the genesis of this whole platform sure, that sure. you created. Right. So when the website was created, it, it started as a Facebook group. So our founder, a guy by the name of Daniel Dillon, founded a Facebook group called California 45th. And it was initially founded to discuss politics. And what we recognized early on is that there were a number of people within this congressional district who wanted to discuss politics, but did not want to do so in a polarized way. And so from the beginning, we always said that our goal was to put people before party and that we wanted to welcome people regardless of their partisan affiliation to a place where they could discuss politics in a way that was respectful and so it's been very important from the beginning to maintain that sort of respect and civic inclusiveness go ahead <laughs> no no that's but that's a very very specific very particular sweet spot mm -hmm. and that since facts have become such an antagonistic kind of a term, trade term to use. How do you keep that from being a quaint and a fainted notion here in 2020? Right. So, so moving from the Facebook group, what we also recognize is that if we were going to have a respectful conversation, it had to be based on empirical information. That is to say, people can't just bring in ideas. It's important to have ideas. Of course, that's what motivates us. But we have to somehow agree on what the basic facts are. And what many of us saw with respect to reporting early on in 2017, especially with respect to Orange County and politics and with our elected representatives, is that they seem to be very out of touch with their constituents. So the former representative for this congressional district, Mimi Walters, I had seen her on a couple of interviews and she had been asked about the district, specifically the fact that the district voted for Hillary Clinton, but yet she was a Republican and was elected to represent the district. And they asked her, how are you going to reconcile the two? And her response was, well, I don't think the message of Donald Trump really made it to the district. And when I heard that, as a social scientist, I thought to myself, wait a minute, aren't you looking at this information from the registrar of voters? Haven't you seen this decline in Republican Party representation and increase in non-party preference voter? It boggled my mind that these basic facts that anyone could obtain by just going to the OC Registrar of Voter website were somehow ignored by our elected representative. So that prompted a number of us to get together and say, you know what, maybe we should research the district a little bit better with respect to voters, with respect to what their priorities are, and then call our elected representatives into account when they vote against the interests of what many of the constituents have said is important to them. So before Mimi Walters was voted out, you're, you were already in place. Correct. Cor and so did you present your platform to her staff? Well, what we did, yeah, there were a number of people, of course, during those days, Indivisible, and this is a separate group from right. us. So there were a lot of movements across and the country. And they're pretty partisan, Indivisible Very was. much, right. And that's why we wanted to be a little bit different because yeah. we didn't want to just appeal to a partisan sensibility, but rather a people sensibility. One that said, hey, our district is more than a quarter foreign born. Our district is very well educated. For example, our congressional district, compared to congressional districts across the country, is in the 90th percentile for level of education. That is to say more That's than amazing. half more than half have at least a bachelor's degree. And when you look at level of income, we had a very high percentile with respect to income. So this congressional district is very well educated, very high in terms of median income, and also foreign born. But it seemed that the representative was not paying attention to those things, especially with respect to the percentage of foreign born residents, with respect to what was going on in the political sphere. And those were the things that we wanted to communicate. So. What did they take in? Did, I mean, do they do they receive your messages? Did it give you time? I mean, because you you were posting, presenting your platform as nonpartisan and factual, but was. How did they take that? Yeah, it, so it wasn't... Not to spend too much time it, on yeah, our office, yeah, but we yeah. want to know so, what happened. So it wasn't so much that we were presenting a platform. What we were encouraging people to do is contact 
her office okay and let them send know a constituents exactly. to her exactly okay. that was the main for because it's not we are not a group that takes a position but we want to encourage participation along with in the encouraging of information in the public sphere okay for those of you who've just joined us my guest is alexandra macias she's a political science professor at cal state northridge university and a contributor to californiafifth.org a grassroots clearinghouse for california's 45th congressional district where kuci is housed so your website, as we talked about, it's a veritable clearinghouse mapping out the incumbent legislation. We can just mm-hmm. see everything that's been sponsored or supported, research projects that you're doing, polling, mm-hmm. and you're tracking campaign finance, which is yes. the FEC data, which is not so easy to parlay. And you're finding, uh, just you're breaking it down for us, what the totals are and what are the the categories of amounts that are, they're receiving mm-hmm. and over that. So this is a, a guide to interact with incomes. You're talking about that. So how uh, how are you getting your word out that you exist putting this information <laughs> together? Well, I besides think, right here. I right. Hope. Right. Well, we're hoping to. But, you know, Facebook as a social media platform and many social media platforms have a unique role now in politics before. And we've you've mentioned this before as a media enterprise before social media, all media was a one way communication. That is to say, you can sit in a radio station, you can sit in a television station, you can sit at a newspaper and you can send information outwards, but you don't receive it back with social media. It's a two way interaction. And that's a huge change that has affected politics. So no longer are messages being transmitted to the public, but the senders of information are receiving it back from the public. And that is where social media plays an important role because elected representatives don't just have to wait to hear from constituents calling in, but they comment on their web pages and what have you. So we find that a lot of politically engaged people are on social media and they are getting information via social media. So the website itself is a place where we can give a deeper dive with respect to the information, but the social media is the pivot point by which we hope to bring in people to say, hey, here's a place you can look at to get further information. So are you getting messages back from the incumbent? Not directly. But they know you're there. I believe they do. Well, we know they we know they do. We okay, because that's do. the that's what I mean about the two way civic lesson here. Civic engagement is R- right keeping them accountable because they can see. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've had we've actually had in our congressional district we have had not just um, elected representatives, but we've also had candidates for office apply to join our Facebook group. So it's it's par- on their radar, that's for sure. So all the the candidates on there, there's a few of them that have withdrawn. So they're they're going to have to be uh, re- they're scrubbed from there. I guess they're sort of like remnants from previous campaigns and filings and that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to know. When will you next have a survey for the 45th? We are thinking about doing one in the spring. We've done a number of different surveys. They've come in two forms. So initially, when people think about surveys, they think about telephone surveys, which is something that we had done in the 2017 and 2018 years. And telephone surveys are great for reaching older people who may not be um, online, who may be home. And so we found that when we did a lot of telephone surveys, we would reach older people very easily. But we also had to incorporate online surveys where we would email voters and ask them to complete our questionnaires. And so we've done a combination of both online and email, and we hope to get um, at least two of them done by the fall. So we want to do a telephone survey and we want to do an email survey. We've noticed that the population that responds are very different. So telephone surveys, a lot of older people will answer the phone. Do you know their landlines or cell phones? Well, yes, this is where the information comes from, just so people know this. Okay, okay. Please. Oh, this is it. This is it, yeah. So all the secrets will be revealed right now. <laughs> so when people register to vote, they give the registrar of voters information with respect to their address, with and respect to their phone. Yeah, it's public information. That's how anyone can get a hold of it. When you get a hold of registrar voters information, you have to verify that you're going to be using the information for either educational slash research purposes, which is what we do, 
or campaigning. That's not what we do, but of course, political campaigns get the same information. So if you ever wonder how a political campaign or a survey researcher has your information, there's a good chance they've gotten it from the registrar of voters. So if someone registered to vote and they just gave the registrar of voters an email address as a contact, then you'll probably get the email survey. But if you've given a telephone number as a contact, then you'll probably get a telephone survey. So I need to find out how you're funding all of this enterprise. This is all sweat equity. It is all. It is literally sweat equity. I mean, it, it's really not expensive. People would be surprised. In fact, I've had some a couple of people say, you know what, we should put all this together in a toolkit yes. and make it available to people in other congressional districts because you really don't need money to be civically engaged and effective. You need time and you need skills. And some of the things, I mean, again, you give me an introduction as, you know, I've, I'm a researcher in political science. I'm a political science professor. And for that reason, yes, I know how to pull data. I know how to get the information. I know how to construct a survey. And that is a certain amount of information that is valuable Totally. In terms of a dollar amount, but it's not something that someone else couldn't do either. My daughter just did my my literal high school daughter, who's sixteen, just did a survey for a AP course that she's taking, and I was impressed by how quickly she did it and how easily American she put history? it together. Sorry, in American history, AP uh, no, it was actually AP Environmental Science. Okay. She did a survey on recycling. But my point is that if a sixteen-year-old can do a survey. Really, anyone can. You don't have to have a PhD to do this. And activists everywhere don't have to think that they have to have huge amounts of money to actually do research. Although I'm going to control for the Masias uh, intellectual power. I can imagine that nobody gets to partake in dinner until they've answered four <laughs> civics questions. So yeah, my, it's, my daughter it's just any actually kid. said that. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So I'm interested in seeing that this template moves out to all hundreds of the congressional districts so that that accountability is in place and the engagement's in place all over the country. And I think it would make such a huge difference in voter knowledge and participation levels. Yeah. And I will add a certain level there. One of the things that our group has always thought about in the future, of course, you know, we're still going, but one of the things we thought would be great is if we could even take it down on a lower level. So okay. at the city level, if you had specific groups that were, for example, you know, Irvine.org, I'm sure something like that exists, but you know what I'm saying, where you have a clearinghouse, you have a discussion group, and I know Irvine is pretty well um, established with respected online discussion groups and clearinghouses, but perhaps other places like Mission Viejo, where I live, or Foothill Ranch, they may not have those those same sorts of resources or activists, but what a boon it would be for civic engagement if in every sort of locality, in every congressional district, you had citizen groups that were grassroots, not funded by any official organization, but really just based on sweat equity, paying attention to issues and, and giving information out to informed constituents or interested constituents. I think Irvine, as it ravenously annexed lots of new turf into the city limits, mm -hmm. it became more dispersed in terms of what it looked like on our participation, our, our knowledge and understanding relationship to our city council. So uh, it became a bit more complicated that way. And we have dueling newspapers, mm -hmm. citizens newspapers, so it's sort of a, and, and it's that's a little rich. exercise. You know, Alexis de Tocqueville, when he came over to the Aww. United States, right, to study how democracy was faring in America, one of the things that he pointed out was how important newspaper readership was to civic engagement. And when we look at the media in general, we know that newspaper readership is on the wane. So to hear that there are two newspapers, dueling newspapers in Irvine is actually a very but strong sign of civic they're engagement. All, but it's their own project. It's like a, a private one. What's there's developer-sponsored newspapers, and they look kind of like the one that the former city council member who's still got issues going on that is printing out on, out of his own pocket. So it's it's not like reading the the local. 
I wouldn't say the register, but the a local other newspaper. True. The, but there is a resurgence when you do look at me. And I, one of the courses that I teach in my day job is media and politics. And there is a resurgence of local newspapers across the country. So that's a hopeful sign for civic engagement to see a resurgence of that. But we were lost the weekly. So <laughs> there, there's it's it's a net it's a net negative, I think, is what we're looking at at this point. So tell us. Any kind of events we should be looking for? Are you going to be pushing out some new material on your website? Well, yeah. So, so some of the things that, like I mentioned before, is we do intend to have a couple of surveys done before the fall, and we'd like to put that out there. But um, not before the primary. That's too fast. Def- yeah, it would be too fast of a turnaround. And at this point, the, the push is to get people to know about the voting system because it is so different. And yes. I'm so glad you'll be discussing that. But we do want to research the interests or the issues of interest to voters because when you have a high percentage of NPP voters, one of the things that we know from political science research is that NPP voters, because they are non-party preference, they're less likely to vote according to partisan identity because they don't have it. And they're more likely to vote according to which issues mean the most to them. And what we found in the district in the 2018 cycle was that the issues that meant the most to voters were both the tax issue and health care. So if we can get a sense of what issues are most important to voters and we present this in a nonpartisan way, we're not just some political organization doing a survey, but truly this is what people in the district feel. We want to transmit that to people who are both in office and running for office to say, hey, this is really what voters think. So please speak to that in your campaigns. So you were talking about voter knowledge of the issues. So, but there's a different kind of visibility of the incumbent from the previous incumbent. Oh, yes, absolutely. So does that, does the voter recognition, is it, you know that from all of your political science research, does the, the fact that Katie Porter is, she's, I would say the previous incumbent was talking to her her base. It, all her communications were just to the base. Katie Porter is now finding different she's on the dais there in congress speaking to the 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 forces to be reckoned with in banking on the cabinet and elsewhere and so peering on late night television in a lot of different places so is her visibility even a larger factor than the voter sorts of materials issues yeah you know it's interesting that you say that because when um we were looking at what happened in 2018 and this was part of my own personal research i was looking at what happened to mimi walters how did she lose you don't usually see a two-term incumbent lose and unless there's a scandal or something like that and there were a number of factors that i believe explained her loss One of them was that she had a really low name recognition in the district. It was shocking at how many people didn't know who their elected representative was. Um, And one of the things we're going to research is what Katie Porter's, her name recognition really is. We don't know what it is. But when you look at what Mimi Walters did with respect to constituent outreach, she never held an in-person town hall in the 2017-2018 cycle. Katie Porter has held, I think, 12 of them or something. So there's a lot of outreach there. Um, The news shows that Mimi Walters was on were very small segments on um, channels and not very often. Katie Porter has gone on Bill Maher. She's been on CNN. She's been on MSNBC. She's been on a lot of really high-profile media um, venues. So I would expect her name recognition to be higher, even though she's a lot less, um, has less time in office. So, and compatible, I'm guessing, with your charter, when Katie Porter puts herself out there, it's a substantive kind of engagement with the media. Well, it is. You know, I, I'm not, I, it's really not our place to, to sort of ascertain whether it's substantive or not. But in terms of, of pure visibility, it's, well, but there's no learning, comparison. I mean, but she's challenging the Consumer Protection Bureau uh, acting director on what is the 
the lending rate for the payday loan. What's what's the interest rate for that? So that that's substantive. And she's talking with the, about the REOs with with Ben Carson. She's talking with Jamie Dimon. How is the banker in my district that works for you, Jamie Dimon? How is that person going to handle seven hundred dollars in the red every month? So I, I think that's that, what I mean yeah. by the substantive. Well, it, it speaks more to her committee assignments in Congress. That's substance. And so, but that's substance, and that isn't necessarily something within her control, right? Because party leadership determines where congressional representatives are placed in terms of their committee assignments. Mimi Walters' committee assignments did not seem to match what the interests of her constituents were. And I think that was to her detriment. So what what party leadership, Republican Party leadership saw for Mimi Walters was that she would have been sort of an up-and-coming person within the party, but they didn't pay attention to what the interests of the actual district were. And I think that was to her detriment because then she didn't have a platform to speak on issues that were important to constituents, whereas the point that you're making about Katie Porter with respect to consumer interests and stuff, she is in a better position to speak to interests of her constituents because of her committee assignments. Well, I hope that you'll come back in the fall and tell us what your findings are so that we can uh, see you bloom. And you can tell us how many other congressional districts are picking up on this really wonderful template. Well, thank you again for having me. And please encourage all of your listeners to visit California45th.org. Well, I want to thank you, Alexandria Macias. I appreciate your taking the time today. Thank you. That was Alexandra Macias, political science professor at Cal State Northridge and contributor to the California45th.org. We'll be right back after a short station break with David Meyer, UCI professor of sociology. Don't go away. That was a track from the Kiosk album. And that was Pragmatisma and another Farsi word that accompanied to that. Thank you for staying tuned. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is the man I like to go to for social movements, David Meyer, UCI professor of sociology, political science and planning policy and design at UCI here, whose previous appearance on the show addressed the Occupy movement. His general areas of interest include social movements, political sociology and public policy, peace and war and social justice. He's most directly concerned with the relationships between social movements and the political contexts in which they emerge. His most recent publications include The Resistance, The Dawn of the Anti-Trump Opposition Movement, and The Politics of Protest, Social Movements in America. David's commentary can be followed on his blog, Politics Outdoors. He completed his BA in Literature at Hampshire College and his PhD in Political Science at Boston University. Welcome back to ask a leader, David Meyer. It's good to be with you. So I wasn't sure <laughs> with the, the the breaking news what what kind of protest we were going to be talking about at this conversation. So which, David? There's a lot going on all over the frickin' world. Which ones are you tracking most closely? I'm most focused on the United States, but. We're in this odd position where what's happening in the United States is probably not the most important stuff. So I'm obsessed with Hong Kong, but I don't know anything about Hong Kong. So I just listen to people who know more than like I do. Like Jeff Wasserstrom knows. He's just pushed out a book up at the brink, and, and mm. it's getting a lot of attention. So there's, it's we're lucky that we have him tapping in it. But sure, and, but I but I'm an American. I live in yeah. the United States, and this is the world I'm trying to make. And. Um, yeah, and I there watch my students and I watch young people across the country and I want to be optimistic. And um, I just watched a couple of days ago the uh, protest in New York City against anti-Semitism. And that's on your blog. That's your most recent posting, January 2, last Thursday. Well, I, I was interested in who gets to, to campaign against anti-Semitism. And who does? <laughs> well... You would think, well, ha what I said in the blog, which I really believe is there are two lessons you can take from the Holocaust and they're kind of opposing lessons. 
One lesson is, boy, people are out to get the Jews. The Jews have to stick together because anybody's going to screw us and we have to do whatever it takes to survive. And there, we definitely see people articulate that view, like Stephen Miller, who is in the White House and is really incorrigible and horrible and very powerful. The other view, which I think is more common, is that if people can do what was done to the Jews in the Holocaust to the Jews, they could do it to anybody. And if they'll come after Latinos or blacks or gays, they'll come after you next. Or Muslims. Or Muslims, absolutely. So um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was out there, and that's completely consistent with the posture that she's taken in her very short political career. And um, some Jewish media was criticizing her because she has um, protested, uh, protested on behalf of immigrants because she called the camps on the border where children are being detained concentration camps, which is actually pretty accurate. And uh, they thought that that some of the conservative Jewish press thought that diluted the uh, uniqueness of the Holocaust. So I was interested in that. So, David, let's talk about the necessary ingredients in a social movement to get them off and running, have that critical sort of mass and, and maybe to approach an outcome, a desirable outcome, because I mean, we, movements we never know where they're going when they're started. But I, what about? I mean, there are elements, and I I was happy to be able to interview some years ago. It was called "Importing Democracy" by Julie Fisher, and she talks about the there's necessary ingredients for democratic movements, and I'm assuming that's where most of these are. Pro these social movements are going is for democratic values. But how much? That's a very um charitable assumption yeah one of the ugly things okay let's do that let's, <laughs> let's break do that which. part down talk about the how much of social movements in our time now are about achieving democratic values <sighs> i wish i could give you a percentage one of the things that's happened in the trump in the trump era is trump has enabled and provoked a strong opposition that espouses democratic values and we see people in the streets on a whole range of issues a march for science a march for immigrants a march for women march for reproductive rights a march for tax justice and on and on and on and i'm sure i'm leaving out 35 of them at least okay at the same time he's also um enabled, encouraged a sort of racist nationalism by articulating support for um, an America first vision, which is determinedly white and nationalist and um, isolationist and is uh, pretty scary. And it's not as though people who believe those things didn't exist before Trump, but they are legitimated at the moment from the White House. And when Trump goes, whenever that is, whether it's next week in the next election or sometime after that, those people are not going to go away. And those right wing movements are also mobilized and activated. And alas, it's not just in the United States. So what we're seeing around the world is a right wing populism, which is nationalist. And it's not just in the United States. It's in Italy, it's in Spain, and we're also seeing a left-wing, democratic, sometimes populist movement embracing a whole range of issues also mobilizing, and this is a battle that we really can't call at this moment. It's something that we're deeply engaged in, and I don't know how it's going to turn out. So you raise an interesting point, as a necessary point, that a movement organizes around a principle or principles, and you're saying that it's really essential tactically for that movement to understand the counter-movement. Well, um, when we talk about social movements too often, we see them as the only player in the field. But in contemporary American politics, everybody's engaged in social movement tactics. It's not only people on the left who do civil disobedience and lionize civil disobedience. Remember um, 
the uh, county clerk who refused to issue a license to a gay couple. That was civil disobedience that conservatives lionized. So that's, yeah. it's a tactic that's used on both sides. Mass demonstrations, a tactic that, use, that is used on both sides. And sometimes more aggressive stuff than peaceful demonstrations, which in the United States has been more on the right than on the left, but it's certainly not the exclusive province of the right. So, yeah, um, everybody's engaged. And partly it's a function of divided government where every activist group can find allies and opponents in American government. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is UCI sociology professor David Meyer. He's in political science and planning and policy design appointments. Also at UCI, we're talking about social movements. He's mainly involved in blogging about the domestic social movements with eyes on what's going on uh, around the world. So how much, David, does a movement, does it spark, reinforce a different movement somewhere else. How, how much are they looking at each other, getting maybe they provide each other with more tailwinds? To, oh, my gosh. Well, How does I that mean, work? What's that dynamic like? Well, for most people to get involved in politics, they have to believe. I mean, saints and psychopaths <laughs> will protest and take to the streets and get engaged even if there's no prospect of influence. For most people to get involved, they have to think that they might matter. And when you see somebody else doing something that does matter or looks like it matters, then that's encouraging, and it's encouraging across the political spectrum. I was uh, interested. I, I signed up with Greta Thunberg on Twitter and Facebook yes. just to see what she was writing about. She's a charming young woman and very committed. And Greta says that she was inspired by the Parkland kids. When she saw wow. high school students in the United States, which is very far away, speaking up for the things that they cared about, she s took that as an example and as a model that she could emulate. And we know that there are children all across the United States and all around the world who see Greta in the same way that she saw Emma Gonzalez and David Hogg. So there's, a, I mean, pardon the pun, a demonstration effect. When there you see, is. There clearly is. When you see some, when you see something that seems to work, you're more likely to try it. And so that's one of the things that's happening now globally. Um, another thing that we need to talk about, yeah, is the technology of mobilization has made it easier to get the word out across um, broader networks than ever before. So in ancient times, when I was a child activist. <laughs> The way you got your word out was by knocking on doors or creating telephone trees. My students don't know what a telephone tree is. Or they don't know what the mimeographed copies of Mimeographed copies, wheat pasting, yep. going out at night and uh, putting up posters for demonstrations. On telephone poles. On telephone poles and on walls. Um, those are kind of obsolete technologies now. Now, anybody with a Facebook account or um, Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter can get a word out. And that's a huge advantage and it's a huge disadvantage. Right. And the advantage part is it's easier to reach larger groups of people. It's disadvantage because there's more clutter. There's more disinformation and misinformation everywhere. It's harder to sort out what's true. And it's a huge disadvantage because when you knock on a door or do a telephone tree, you actually get to know the people you're organizing. You talk to people. You build capacity, you build organization, you build solidarity. When you show up at a demonstration where you may not know anybody, the level of trust is lower, the level of discipline is lower, and the level of commitment may be lower. And so what's happened over the last, let's say, 15 years is it used to be you built an organization and then you did events, and now the events come first and the organization comes afterward. And we still don't know how that's going to work out. So I want to... Uh, go back to what you're talking about, that synergy was um, with Greta Thunberg and with the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School students. So that when there is a, that when that synergy can go feedback then, and so when they realize the kind of impact they have mm -hmm. on her, she has even a larger, she has an international following mm -hmm. and she was good at 
how she sort of pushed back on all the insults that were all the trolling those lobbyists. She she counter trolled. So so they can then a state and a national uh, gun control movement can tack on to international attention, and so then they they all sort of keep maximizing each other's impacts. Um, absolutely. I think you use the word synergy, which is a really good word to use. And Greta and also the Parkland kids were, I mean, unreasonably wise and really unexpectedly savvy in figuring out how to position themselves. So they all, and maybe they discipline each other in this way, say it's not about us it's about our generation. It's about the it's world. It's existential. Well, David, let's talk about that. That's what makes, when I, I was talking about Julie Fisher's work, she's talking about necessary ingredients, about civil society. But this existential factor mm. for Greta not knowing she's going to have a, inherit a world that even looks a little bit like the world that her predecessors have been able to enjoy, that the Parkland kids, they're all still dealing with post-traumatic shock of all of the the of the assault on their high school scene so that this is now this whole factor of us of an assault on their worlds that means you don't need to have the civic society the affluence the the uh, the literacy and all that you've got a pressing freaking need um yeah, but and that's is where and Hong Kong has this existential threat mm. looming that it doesn't look good for them. Well, I, I mean, I think that there are different uh, different mixes of optimism and desperation in different it's campaigns truly, around the David, world. Truly, um, I think even as Americans, even as young Americans, feel desperate, there are signs of hope and places to take optimism everywhere. And I think most Americans think that there's a meaningful election that's going to take place this year. And in the United States, elections interact with social movements in important ways. You use the example of Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, campaigners know that the parliament they're campaigning for has no real power. And they, they know that candidates who are committed to the democracy movement can be excluded from running for office. In the United States, we're in a very different situation from that. In the United States, we're in a situation where we believe that the election is going to matter, where we believe that if we mobilize people on behalf of the ideas we care about, enough people, that we can elect people who are going to implement policies that we believe in. And that has an interaction with the um, social movements of our time. And at the moment... The Democratic primary campaigns are sucking up huge amounts of energy, activist time, and money on behalf of candidates who are more or less representing causes. And that's something that the American system was designed to do, to make movements um, less powerful and less disruptive and to find institutional ways to promote change. So... That's an interesting and difficult moment that we're in as well. Huge, huge. But the is it double edged though that the that those resources that the current Democratic presidential campaigns are consuming is it having an effect of engaging more voters that hadn't anticipated participating before? It's absolutely double edged. And grassroots mobilization tends to decline or be channeled in election year um, in, in election years. I was looking at the Tea Party stuff recently about this, and Tea Party activism really, really declined precipitously. It 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 at peaked what point? up. At it peaked up in, in 2009 in opposition to the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, which was a loss for the Tea Party. And then channeled into the congressional elections of 2010, which are really not that long ago. The Democrats were in control in 2010, and they lost 63 seats in the House of Representatives. Lacking it, yeah. And the Republicans took control, and the Tea Party basically disappeared. They stopped having rallies. They stopped having rallies because people weren't showing up. The joke I tell is uh, the grassroots was not even was all 
the grassroots disappeared. It's just asphalt, so you don't have demonstrations. But they morphed into a MAGA movement, though. Um, I think the Tea Party story is that you had wealthy interests who were interested in promoting a secular, libertarian, conservative movement. And at the grassroots, it was seized and defined as something other than that. It was defined as uh, vigorously nationalist, anti, um, anti-immigrant, and religious. And that separation between the grassroots and the national politics was part of why the Tea Party as a holder kind of disappeared. And candidate Trump, four years later, rode in in a position to exploit that. I mean, I, I would describe him as the Frankenstein monster that the Tea Party created and channeled the ugly grassroots elements and without any of a commitment to these sort of national big money um, issues that people like the Koch brothers had been promoting, like free trade, for example. So the kinds of surprising things is the rest of the Republican Party, at least in office, has been very deferential to Trump and has been willing to move away from other things that from other uh, issues that it had formerly been matters of principle. And people who had ideological commitments to Republican principles like Paul Ryan have basically left office. And who's left now in Congress are people who either don't know better or are willing to ignore things that they previously said and believed in pursuit of holding power. So that's on the Republican side. The Democratic Party has always been more contentious, less unified, less deferential to its own leaders. So the institutional politics hooks up with the social movements that are in the streets. Um, At the moment, the pressing issue for basically everything left of of center-right is to get rid of Donald Trump. And we're waiting to see what compromises people are willing to make in order to have an effective candidate and win an election. So, David, sadly, that has to be the last question because we are out of time now. I I would, in a later round with you, talk about that the public choice theory with organizing around one item versus everything Mm. else, uh, multiple things, sets a particular movement up for greater success. But we will take that up at a later date, I am surely hoping. So, Dave Meyer, thank you so much for coming all the way in studio to join us today on Ask a Leader. Thank you, Claudia. My guest was UCI sociology professor David Meyer, and we were talking about social movements, mainly here about how what's going on in their interactions around the world. I want to quickly get off a message here that the Orange County Registrar of Voters is conducting a mock election today, showcasing how those vote centers are going to work out. There will be 188 fully staffed vote centers. And then, let's see, today we have the location will be at the actual Orange County Registrar of Voters office as well at South Grand Avenue building in Santa Ana and Mission Viejo City Hall at Saddleback Room Civic Center Mission Viejo. It's going on right now. It right, starts at 10 o'clock if you're listening live and it'll go until 6. If you want more details about this, go to ocvote.com forward slash mock election. Neil Kelly, Registrar of Voters par excellence, will be on Ask a Leader on February 4th for full updates on the California primary. Well, that is my wrap. Next week, Davin Phoenix, UCI political science professor, will return. He's got a new book out, The Anger Gap, How Race Shapes Emotion in Politics. Dr. Hoda Anton Cover will talk about the All of Us Research Program that UCI is participating with the National Institutes of Health undertaking and including a million participants. Then members of the Orange County Women's March Planning Coalition will provide us with the scoop on this year's Women's March in OC. It'll be the fourth annual talk with you next week. Thank you everyone for listening.